Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, October 3rd, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Award-winning journalist Larry Tai and historian David Nassau discuss Robert F. Kennedy's political legacy. Thank you, Louise. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be here talking to a man who's written a wonderful book about a man for whom I have great interest, fascination, and admiration, as well as a little discomfort. And we'll, we'll get into that. Um, biographies, and I think, have to start from the credo of Marx, Karl, not Groucho, who said famously, though Groucho could have said it as well, um, men will make that men and women make history, but not under circumstances of their own choosing. The task of the biographer is finding that margin of change. We are all born into historical contexts, families, ethnic groups, racial groups, geographies, social classes, not of our own choosing. We're born into a time, not of our own choosing. That history, that historical context, shapes who we are, our ambitions, our ideas, where we start from. The individuals who make history take what they've been given and react to their times in such a way to change that historical context. Men and women make history, but not under circumstances of their own choosing. The achievement of Larry's book is telling a tale of one man, one family, one nation, and two decades. He begins in the beginning, and few of us ever follow through on either what we write in our proposals or what we write in our introductions. Um, But Larry did. And he talks about the two decades, the decades of the 50s in which Bobby grows up, The 50s is a period of Eisenhower stability and maturity. Some might call it boredom. A lack of concern with poverty and race. They're not on the political agenda or the intellectual agenda, really. It is a period of Cold War fears and paranoia. And it's a period concerned with recovery from the Depression and the war economic recovery. And Bobby comes of age in the 50s. It's his childhood as a politician, as a man. 
and then moves into the seismic 60s. I think you call it the seismic 60s, in which the Cold War becomes hot in Cuba for a moment in Vietnam. Questions of race and poverty take front pages. There are race riots. Poverty and inequality becomes a theme in politics. So how did this man, what was it? You know, I'll start with the hardest question first. (laughs) What was it in Bobby Kennedy's background, in his previous life, in his character or temperament or personality or upbringing that allowed him to navigate this move from the 50s to the 60s um, and accomplish so much. How did the son of Joe Kennedy become a liberal icon? Great. Easy. (laughs) So before I try to answer that, I would like to ask everybody here a question. Isn't there a baseball game tonight here somewhere? Yeah, that's the okay. I mean, for a Red Sox fan to sit up here and say, we don't care what happens to the Yankees tonight. But the, um, so I think um, I want to go back to what you said at the beginning, which is that great men manage somehow to transcend their times and what's happening around them. And Bobby didn't start off as a great man, and he didn't transcend his time, I think, in the 1950s. He was hugely a reflection of what was going on in terms of the Red Scare. He believed that, like his father, that there was one man in Washington who was taking seriously the threat that the Soviets posed, not in the Soviet Union, but behind every pillar in the State Department, and that man was Joe McCarthy. And he went to work for Joe McCarthy partly because he was a um, graduate of the University of Virginia. Anybody here go to the University of Virginia Law School? Yeah? Okay. Um, So he graduated from the University of Virginia, which was a very good law school, and solidly in the middle of his class. And when he was out looking for a job, he partly looked for a job by doing what the Kennedys always did, which is Joe made a phone call because he had made some donations, and Joe McCarthy took his phone call. And it was natural that his father would call Joe McCarthy looking for a job for him. But Bobby enthusiastically went to work for Joe McCarthy because he believed in what Joe McCarthy was doing. And he very much did not transcend what was going on. When he went to work for McCarthy, McCarthy, it was very apparent who McCarthy was at that time. And nobody should have had any illusions. And Bobby Kennedy had illusions. So he went to work for him, unlike what many family and friends will tell you today, um, which is that it was an asterisk or a footnote in Bobby's career. It was an incredibly important formative moment in Bobby's career He goes to work for him. He stays for seven and a half long months. And he leaves saying that Joe McCarthy didn't do anything wrong. It was Roy Cohn who got McCarthy into trouble. And that was too facile an answer, and it wasn't true. Um, So at that moment, Bobby Kennedy was a man of his times and very much his father's son, who he became over time. And I hope we'll talk about this more than just my quick answer now, um, was somebody who learned incredibly by watching what was going on around him. He was better than anybody that I've ever seen in my life at sort of picking up cues of what was happening in a world around him. And in contrast to his brother Jack, I like to say that Rose Kennedy dreamed that one of her boys 
would make the church their vocation. And had Jack Kennedy done that, Jack Kennedy would have been the Pope because that was who Jack Kennedy was. He was an intellectual, he was an elitist, and he learned from on high. Bobby Kennedy would have been a parish priest because that's the way he related to the world and the way he learned. And he was down watching what was going on around him, making all kinds of mistakes, which he did as attorney general, which he did as senator, but he was learning from those mistakes and he was becoming better. And instead of, at the end, instead of going with the political winds, he was helping steer those winds. And so he started out as a fairly narrow, cold warrior, and he became a very unlikely liberal icon who was not just an interesting figure nostalgically, but whatever your politics are today, he was the kind of bridge builder that I think lots of us yearn for in a time when we need somebody to build bridges today. Well, do do you buy into or or how do you respond to the the notion that there's this almost religious conversion after his brother's death, that he retreats into a mourning, a grieving, a solitude, and comes out of it a different man. So before I answer that question, can I one more aside here? And the aside is, one of the things you learn when you're writing a biography on somebody like Bobby Kennedy, um, I had written six books before that, and I had read for each of them maybe 100, 150 books. For Bobby Kennedy, I had to read 500 books because everybody in the world has written about the Kennedys. And what you learned was whatever Kennedy figure that you were interested in looking at at any given time, you learned that there was generally one book that had defined that figure better than anybody else. It didn't matter who came before or who came after. And this guy made it easy for me and Joe Kennedy because he wrote The Patriarch which was by far not just the best, but the definitive book that we ever needed on Joe Kennedy. So understanding how Bobby was a reflection of and was the closest of the nine Kennedy children to his father was something I understood partly, maybe mostly because of the patriarch. Um, Now, your question again was about the... The the conversion. The conversion was the death. Yeah, so... I don't pretend to know a whole lot about religion, but I know that if Bobby Kennedy had a single epiphany moment in his life, it was losing his brother. And that was because he had lost in one move his best friend, uh, a guy who had defined his political life, and somebody who he adored. And they had a relationship that Ethel described when... when, um, Uh, one of the most fun things about writing this book was sitting down for a couple long sessions with Ethel Kennedy. And when she was describing Jack and Bobby's relationship, she said it wasn't just that they finished one another's sentences, it was that they didn't have to say anything, that they instinctively knew what the other one was thinking. They were, Bobby was the closest thing that America has ever seen and will ever see to being a co-president. He was Jack's, not just his attorney general and his Um, watching his political backside, but he was the advisor that he trusted most during the Bay of Pigs, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, during everything that mattered during his presidency. And so losing Jack meant that Bobby had lost everything. And for a month after the time that Jack died, Bobby rallied. He rallied because the country needed somebody to rally. Um, Somebody had to give Lyndon Johnson, who nobody really had elected, some sense of legitimacy. And it was Bobby who did a ceremonial laying on of hands and said, 
You know, the Constitution may say that you're the president now, but more importantly, I'm a Kennedy, and I say that you're legitimate here, even though Bobby despised Lyndon Johnson. Um, he, the country needed somebody to be the mourner-in-chief. And any time you saw a picture in those early days of Jackie Kennedy with John John and Caroline, it was Bobby there with them, holding them together. He helped hold America together for that horrible month from the end of November to the end of December in 1963. And at the end of that month, when the Kennedy family was starting to pull it together again, and when America was starting to pull it together again, Bobby Kennedy crashed. And he went through what Ethel Kennedy said, in today's terms, we would call a serious clinical depression. And he thought about giving it all up. He had enough money that he could go and travel the world with his family. He thought about going and being a university professor. This was a guy who barely read books, and he was going to maybe be a university professor. He wanted to get away from a public life, and he was crashing. And yet, at the end of the time of his depression, which was in the middle of a campaign for senator, we all remember Bobby ran for senator from the state of New York, where every carpetbagger who didn't have a real home came when they wanted to run for senator. And he ran for senator, and it wasn't until the middle of that campaign, when it looked like in mid-October that Bobby could actually lose. That is the moment where I think he came out of his depression. He realized that the enormous crowds that he could generate were crowds coming not just for his dead brother, Jack, but for him. And that was a moment where he started to define in a very different way what his life was about. And I want to just give you one example of what he did after this epiphany moment. He started actually reading books for the first time. And it wasn't just any book. Instead of relaxing by going out and playing a bone-crushing game of touch football on the front lawn in Palm Beach or Hyannisport, he would be found in his bedroom reading Greek tragedy. And he was reading the Greeks for two reasons. One is because sister-in-law Jackie said, read the Greeks. But more importantly, he saw in the story of the ancient Greeks, the story of the Kennedy family, a family with huge hubris who had crashed and lost it all and suddenly had to figure out what the meaning of their lives and of the world really was all about. And Bobby started putting his world together in a very different way, I think, from that moment on. Yeah. I, I want to go back again to, and I think you're too terrific on this, on what it meant for Bobby Kennedy to go from campaign manager to attorney general at age 35. Nobody wanted him to be attorney general. He didn't want the job. Jack didn't want to give it to him. Ethel didn't think it was a good idea. Joe Kennedy said, Bobby's going to be your attorney general. Jack always thought there'd be a fight about Treasury Secretary, that Joe would say, I want this one and this one and this one. But no, all he wanted was for Bobby to be in the cabinet because he said to Jack, you're going to need someone who's loyal to you. In the beginning, Bobby was an active attorney general. And then, as you talk about it, the Bay of Pigs, after the disaster of the Bay of Pigs, um, Jack turned to Bobby. Joe had been right. The only person he could trust was Bobby. And Bobby becomes assistant president with domestic and foreign portfolios. 
He, he's sort of the shadow HEW secretary, the shadow secretary of defense, the shadow head of the CIA. Um, and you're terrific on this because you get right into the nitty gritty of the dark side of Bobby and the Kennedys, um, which we call Operation Mongoose. Bobby was JFK's Eleanor Roosevelt, his superego, as you say, but he was also his Halderman and his John Mitchell. He was the keeper of the dark side and the dirty tricks. And, you know, Bobby, with Operation Mongoose, which none of the biographers really wanted to deal with and draw conclusions from um, the way you did, it's a frightening story. Um, And the consequences of Operation Mongoose and of Bobby's new role in the government are incredible. You say Bobby's six weeks studying the Bay of Pigs established a work pattern that allowed him to juggle his expanded portfolio. And it helped explain why issues like civil rights never became the priority they might have in the Kennedy administration. Because Eleanor Roosevelt had become Haldeman Mitchell. Um, And then on page 252, you say, and this is quite a... um, Condemnation. You say the Kennedy's Cuba obsession and the underhanded tactics that it spawned became a legacy that long outlived JFK and RFK's administration. Veterans of the Bay of Pigs and Mongoose operations would help engineer the 1972 Watergate burglary, the 1976 bombing of a Cuban airliner that killed 73 passengers, the assassination in Washington of Orlando Letelier, the Chilean ambassador. The precedent of Kennedy's underwriting a secret war in Cuba emboldened future American presidents, all of whom knew about Operation Mongoose in the way that the rest of us didn't. It emboldened future American presidents to pursue undeclared wars of their own. Richard Nixon in Laos and Cambodia, Ronald Reagan in Nicaragua. Bobby was out CIAing the CIA. And then you make also the suggestion, and you have sources for this, that the Cuban Missile Crisis is in part a response to Operation Mongoose. That Castro gets deeper into bed with the Soviets and accepts missiles because the Kennedys are out to get them. Yes, so the question is, the, um, is that, yeah, I think, um, so can I just bring it even more up to date in terms of a, um, a little bit of a scary precedent that the Kennedys set then um, in terms of what they did um, in their dealings with Moscow and Cuba. Um, Bobby, in the very early days of the Kennedy administration, decided that the bureaucracy... Um, was not to be trusted, especially after the Bay of Pigs. The CIA and the military had given Jack Kennedy bad advice, and we had gone and done this invasion that turned out to be a disaster. And Bobby Kennedy um, decided that he was going to have his own back-channel communication 
with Russia. And he was meeting with a guy um, named Bolshakov, and they would meet on the lawn of the White House, and the FBI was trying to figure out what he was doing. But it was done in a quiet way that basically uh, Bobby felt that word from Jack could be transmitted via this guy Bolshakov to Nikita Khrushchev and not have bureaucracies that had their own interests get in the way. And this was one of the things that the Trump administration used in when their back-channel communications via Kushner and whoever else were exposed several months ago. They said, geez, but look, the Kennedys did it. And I think that this was um, Bobby at his um, least sort of democratic and most dangerous. And I think he changed dramatically. And I think he learned from all the things that he had done wrong during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the, the legacy of the Cuban Missile Crisis that I think haunted Bobby until his very last days was um, that they were always asking Bobby, what do you think about the Warren Commission report? Do you believe that it was Lee Harvey Oswald, or as Bobby would say, <laughs> Harvey Lee Oswald, because he had heard, the first time he ever heard Lee Harvey Oswald mentioned on television, the announcer had gotten it wrong, and Bobby always repeated it as Harvey Lee Oswald. But he said, yeah, I read the Warren Commission report, and they were right. Now, number one, I don't think he read it. And number two, I know he didn't think that it was right. But I think Bobby Kennedy thought two things. One is he thought the only way we were going to get to the truth of what happened to his brother Jack is if he, Bobby, were president and he could be running the investigation. And he didn't trust Lyndon Johnson or not even um, the wonderful Earl Warren to get all of that right. But I think what Bobby feared was that he was never sure who had really been behind the death of his brother. And he wondered whether it was one of the hornet's nests that he had stirred up that came back and bit his brother. And that hornet's nest could have been his war against organized crime. And he waged the most aggressive war against organized crime that has ever been waged in America. It might have been his war against Jimmy Hoffa. And he knew that the Teamster boss, Jimmy Hoffa, sure as hell had friends who, if they had wanted to knock somebody off, could have done it. Most of all, Bobby Kennedy feared that it was the secret year-long Operation Mongoose war against Fidel Castro that had somehow come back and had this friend of Fidel Castro's, um, Lee Harvey Oswald, assassinate Jack Kennedy. And he was never sure what happened, but he used to tell friends, it should have been me. And I think what he meant was that he was the one who had stirred things up, and in fairness, if they were going to get anybody, they should have gotten him. But what kind of a... um, I'm going to make you engaging counterfactual history, which no historian should do to another. Um, What kind of a president would he have been? I mean, these are tendencies that, you know, in, in many ways, let me go off for a minute. In many ways, Bobby is like T.R. He comes to power too fast. Um, He's too smart. He's too aggressive. He's too confident. He's too sure of himself. The later Bobby. Um, What would a Kennedy presidency, would he have backed off and respected the constitutional uh, separations of powers that he didn't respect as attorney general or as co-president? So I'm going to be cautious and say that Bobby would have been the best president in my lifetime, if not in American history. Um, cool. he, would have been, he would have been an extraordinary president. 
American history is going too far, but he would have been an extraordinary president for his times and for our times. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. Jack Kennedy, um, in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, um, in 1962, 1963, every time a reporter or a friend would ask Jack Kennedy, when are you going to give us a tough civil rights bill? When are you going to get us out of Vietnam, this conflict that you've put advisors over there? When are you going to do any of the really tough things? His answer was always the same. When I'm reelected, I'll look at doing that. You know, we'll get a tough civil rights bill. He filed the civil rights bill because Bobby told him to in 1963. It wasn't as strong a bill as I think he might have filed after re-election when he didn't have to worry about losing a Southern vote. And I think Bobby Kennedy had none of Jack's patience And I think he would have done a tough civil rights bill in the first five minutes that he was elected. I think he was one of the few people who had the courage to stand up in the U.S. Senate on Vietnam and say not just America is wrong in what we've been doing there, but we were wrong. It was the Kennedys who got us in there. He said, mea culpa, but it's now time to get us out. I think he was impatient because that's the kind of guy he was. And he was impatient because he had watched his brother be killed. He had watched his older brother, Joe Jr., be killed. He had watched Kathleen, his big sister, die in a plane crash. And he knew how short life could be. And he knew you couldn't wait until a re-election. You had to do things while you had the chance. And he had this pile of things that he had known that his brother was going to someday try to do and that he was dying to try to do. So he would have been, if not a successful president, a courageous president, and I think he would have been successful as well because he went in there with the kind of background that his brother never had. Jack Kennedy was a cautious U.S. senator in the years that he was a senator from Massachusetts, trying to make a name for himself but not do anything that was going to upset enough important constituencies to make him president. Bobby Kennedy, when he was a U.S. senator, which was only from 1964 till 1968, He did more and tried to do more than any senator of his era. He gave us a model program for the war on poverty by what he was trying to do in Bedford-Stuyvesant. He led the way in trying to get us out of Vietnam. On issue after issue, he became... South Africa? South Africa. He went to South Africa. There are more children (laughs) of baby boomer age in South Africa today named either first name or middle name Kennedy And that was after Bobby Bobby, Kennedy, because he came there and gave the most extraordinary speech, a speech that has become known as the Ripple of Hope speech, a speech that gave South Africans, white and black, who listened to him in 1966, enough inspiration that years later they would say he was the guy who turned them on to the potential of making a difference. I want to be parochial again and go back to my home state of Massachusetts and say we had a Chief Justice of our state Supreme Court, a woman named Margaret Marshall, who gave America its first gay rights decision, who, who pioneered more important decisions that became national decisions. She was the woman who, as the head of, as the vice president of the Union of South African Students, was Bobby's tour guide when he came to South Africa. And she said everything she did from gay marriage to civil rights was based on Bobby Kennedy's coming there in 1966 and telling South Africans that they could make a difference. So Bobby Kennedy, as a senator, was out there plotting 
ways of changing America. And yeah. had he been president, he would have, from the beginning, tried to do all those things. And he understood how to make things happen in the Senate. Talk, talk about his learning curve. He has this extraordinary learning curve. And in civil rights, for example, um, in civil rights, it appears that he's bested by Governor Patterson, Governor Barnett, um, Governor Wallace sort of plays with him a little. Yes, not appears. He was. He was. He was. He was embarrassed by them. He started out, I think, largely clueless on civil rights. When you grow up in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, or Palm Beach, Florida, your exposure to civil rights issues um, may be the laundress's, you know, son who he played with. Um, he didn't know a whole lot about civil rights, and he admitted that. And he had a very steep learning curve. He told the Freedom Riders when they were getting their buses burned in Anniston, Alabama, and their heads beat in by Bull Connor's men in Birmingham, he told the Freedom Riders, John Lewis and others, have some patience. I don't want you embarrassing my brother who's going over and going to have a summit with Nikita Khrushchev. You'll make America look bad. Can't you slow down a little bit and cool it off? And, of course, the Freedom Riders told him what he could do with his ideas about slowing down or cooling off. But the great news was that Bobby Kennedy, over time, learned. He learned a hard way. A lot of people suffered. But he learned from the mistakes he made in Birmingham and Montgomery. He learned about the mistakes he made in the riots in, um, at Ole Miss when a lot of people got their heads beat in. There was a civil rights leader named Martin Luther King who said in the early days when all of his young protégés were saying, this Bobby Kennedy is useless. Martin Luther King said, no, Bobby Kennedy has good deep within him, and it's up to us to pull that good out of him. The night that Bobby Kennedy proved Martin Luther King right was a night in 1968 in Indianapolis, the night of Martin Luther King's death, when Bobby Kennedy gave a speech in the middle of the black community of Indianapolis that was a five-minute speech and maybe the most profound speech that a white American has ever delivered in black America. And that speech, don't trust me on the impact of that speech. That speech meant that while 100 cities across America that night in April 1968 had riots, while the city of Washington, D.C., parts of the city were burned down that night, one of the only major cities in America with a sizable black population that didn't riot that night was Indianapolis, and the reason was Robert Francis Kennedy. He went in the black community to embrace them for the loss of Martin Luther King, and instead they embraced him for the loss five years before of Jack Kennedy, and there was magic. And from that night until the end of Bobby Kennedy's life, every black community that he campaigned in in America there was a sign that went up somewhere in that audience. And it was a very short sign. And it said, white, but all right. Well, you know, when you, when you watch that speech, and it's on YouTube, everybody should, should watch that go speech. home and watch it. It's absolutely amazing. Because Bobby doesn't come off as the great white father. He's this little, shy, rumpled man and he starts very slowly and tentatively, um, but without fear, 
and delivers this extraordinary um, speech that's extemporaneous. Does he have notes? He's got notes. So his smart young aides, people like Peter Edelman <coughs> and Adam Walensky, really his um, wonderkins, had given him lots of notes like smart young aides do on his way into the ghetto in Indianapolis. And before he got up and gave his speech, he took their notes, crumpled them up, and threw them away. And he delivered for five minutes entirely extemporaneous and from his heart a speech that I think he'd been waiting to give forever. And it was a speech the first time since his brother was killed in 1963. This is 1968, the first time that he ever talks publicly, mentions his brother's name. And he actually doesn't mention his name. He says, my brother. He couldn't bring himself to say the word Jack. But the audience understood that something special was happening there that night with Bobby Kennedy. And they understood that if it was anybody who had credibility in losing to an assassin's bullet somebody that they were passionate about, it was Bobby Kennedy. (coughs) Excuse me. Why the hesitation? I've never understood it. I never understood it with, with Ted either, his hesitation about running. And Ted's was much worse. Um, Bobby enters the race at the worst possible moment or the worst optics because McCarthy has come so close to defeating LBJ and suddenly Bobby jumps in and everybody draws the conclusion, well, he... Now can McCarthy has set the groundwork and, and he can jump in. What's the hesitation, do you think? So can I just say that when Bobby Kennedy jumped in, you'll all remember that it was New Hampshire primary, right. Gene McCarthy, a know-nothing senator from Minnesota, um, comes in on one issue. Gene McCarthy's terrible on poverty and most other issues. One issue, Vietnam, he comes in and... And when you added up the Republican write-in votes and the Democratic votes, he actually beats the sitting president. And the brilliant line afterwards, Murray Kempton sends a telegram to Ted Kennedy saying, your brother's entry into this presidential race proves that St. That, uh, Patrick didn't drive all the snakes out of Ireland. <laughs> and not to be outdone, LBJ's um, Lady Bird Johnson's press secretary says, it took Bobby Kennedy 20 years to come out against McCarthy and then he picked the wrong McCarthy. <laughs> but what he did was, there were, in, there, in his life, Bobby Kennedy had three totems, three things that really mattered to him. One was being a Catholic, and he was the most Catholic of any of the Kennedy kids. The second was being a Kennedy, <coughs> and he was the most Kennedy-like to the point where Joe tapped Bobby to take over the Klan when Joe, he thought maybe when he died, instead it became when he had a stroke. But the third totem, and this is the one that I think explains why it took so Bobby, Bobby so long, was that he was a Democrat. And that much as he may have despised Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson was his brother's choice as vice president, and you don't take on a sitting Democratic president, or at least you don't do it at the beginning. And eventually, he decided that McCarthy would be terrible, that Lyndon Johnson had to be beat, and that he was a guy who could do it. So he came in He had actually made his decision, which not many people seem to have known at the time. He made his decision to challenge Lyndon Johnson nine days before the New Hampshire primary. But he decided that McCarthy deserved the chance of taking on Johnson, of having a fair shot at him. He had been running for all those months. 
So instead of being ruthless, which is what he was accused of being, he was ham-handed. He waited till after New Hampshire to jump in, and he spent the entire campaign having to prove to people that he was a decent guy. He said that, I've lost all the A students and all I'm left with. Bobby Kennedy's dream was to become the avatar for all the smart, young college students. And he said, all the A students went with McCarthy. All I've got left are the C students. But by the end, by that night in California, when he won the California primary, I'm convinced that all the A students were ready to jump ship from McCarthy. People like Sam Brown, all of his smartest young aides, they were ready to jump. They understood that McCarthy was gone and that Bobby was the one who had the real shot at being president. What's remarkable about that campaign is that we complain, those of us who care about the Democratic Party, that the Democratic Party for too long hasn't had a policy, hasn't had something it stands for. Um, Ted Kennedy, when he ran for president, was this famous interview with Robert Mudd. He couldn't say why he was running for president. I still don't know Carter or Clinton, and certainly Hillary Clinton. Um, Bobby knew exactly why he was running for president. And he, you know, he laid it out in no uncertain terms. And there was something more than refreshing about it. I mean, it's a model that the Democratic Party should, should grab. So that's a model, and he stood for things. It was against Vietnam. It was for ending poverty. It was for lots of things that mattered and that people understood. But the other model was that Bobby Kennedy offered something that we don't often hear as an adjective associated with a politician back then. Um, we don't hear it today, and he offered it back then, and that was the word authentic. And he yeah. was for real, and he would go into black communities and white communities at a time when racial divisions were every bit as deep or maybe deeper than today, and he would give the same speech to both communities. And he would go to black communities and say, number one, we need safe streets. And that was a message that wasn't the first thing that a black community wanted to hear from a white politician because that sort of brought up the issues of rioting and not why they were rioting. But he continued by saying, and the only way we get safe streets is by getting racial justice. And he said the exact same message when he went into white communities. And people didn't necessarily agree with him, but they were so shocked, the same way I think they would be today, by a politician telling them not just the truth, but telling them the opposite of what they wanted to hear, that they started to listen. And I had more reporters tell me, there was a wonderful reporter back then um, for the Washington Post named um, the Black Dog, what was... um, Ooh, I'm going to remember his name in a second, but he was a reporter that Ben Bradley assigned to cover the campaign. And the first night that he was on the campaign, he went out and had a touch football game with Bobby Kennedy. And he came back with nearly a broken nose. And he came back convinced that Bobby Kennedy played dirty on the football field and he probably played dirty in politics. And this reporter despised uh, Bobby Kennedy. Who's the guy who uh, moderates Meet the Press, the... Um, yeah, after Tim Russett died, what was the? Uh, anyway, so that's not, all right. So the, um, this reporter came back convinced that he was going to hate Bobby Kennedy. And Gene midway Rob- through, Gene not Gene, Rob- I'll think of it was, um, he was an ex-Marine and he, they called him um, Black Death 
it was his nickname in the Washington Post newsroom because he was black death to anybody who was doing anything wrong. And he was just he was an extraordinary <laughs> reporter. And he was appointed by Ben Bradley to cover the campaign because Bradley knew he was the one reporter that couldn't be co-opted. And in the middle of the campaign, he came back to Ben Bradley and said, I'm falling in love with Bobby Kennedy. You've got to take me off the campaign. And Ben Bradley said, hell with that. You're going to stay there till the end. You're just the guy I want there. And the point was that the most cynical reporters in Washington watched Bobby Kennedy and saw something authentic that they could relate to in a way that they just didn't fall in love with politicians back then any more than today. And more reporters, including Roger Mudd, who, gave, who asked the famous Ted Kennedy question, told me a generation later that Bobby Kennedy was the last politician they had ever let themselves fall in love with. And it was extraordinary. And they tried to maintain their neutrality, but it was um, the most moving um, eulogies that were delivered for Bobby Kennedy when he died were by all of his journalists that were covering his campaign because they had just, this was so unusual for them. And the, well, it, Jack, Jack Newfield is another one. Uh, Jack, Jack Newfield. Newfield a... So Jack Newfield and my role model in journalism, my two role models were two guys, one named David Halberstam and the other named Bill Kovich. And David Halberstam wrote a valentine of a book, the only book that he ever wrote that could ever be called a valentine, about Bobby Kennedy. And Bill Kovich, who was the longtime Washington bureau chief for the New York Times, gave up journalism for one three-month period of his life, and that was to go work for Bobby Kennedy in California. And the most tough-nosed, hard-edged journalist that I knew in the world saw in Bobby Kennedy something they hadn't seen in any. You know, one of the things I think the, the reporters, the journalists admired about all the Kennedys um, was their work ethic. I mean, Jack out-campaigned from his first election in 1946. His father was so worried that he was overscheduled that he sent spies to find out if Jack was having a nap and if he was eating breakfast. Um, but nothing stopped Jack. Jack co-opted the spy and just kept working. Bobby out-campaigned everybody. He did. And, so, and he would have, I mean, this is why I think he would have won the primary and probably the election. So they ran into, by the way, the journalist I was trying to think of was Richard Harwood, Richard Black Death right. Harwood. And the, um, but once during that campaign in 1960, um, Jack and Bobby ran into one another at an airport and Bobby said, how you doing, Jack? And Jack said, I'm really tired. And Bobby said, what the hell are you tired about? I'm the one out there doing all the work. And he really was. Jack knew how to relax. And Bobby knew that he could never let down. And he, and, and he never did. And, you know, I'll tell one story about Ted. I interviewed Ted for my book the night before he went to Hyannisport and collapsed and was later diagnosed with his horrible brain cancer. And we were going to have dinner at 6 o'clock. And I kept getting calls from Vicky. Could you come, his wife, can you come at 6.30, 7, 7.30, We finally got there at 9. And why? Because Ted was trying to get support for a Senate resolution that would have said it was the voice of the, the state, the resolution of the Senate that firefighters should have the right in every state to unionize. And he had been walking around 
with firefighters in their uniforms all through the Senate introducing them. And they had these stacks of statistics that showed that when they were unionized, there were less injuries and less deaths. And he spent the entire day um, working his colleagues in the Senate trying to get this thing done. Um, Can I say one quick thing about Ted, by the way, and his relationship with Bobby? So Bobby and Jack had an amazing relationship. Um, When Jack died, I think that Bobby and Ted had a relationship equally extraordinary. When When their staffs couldn't find one of them, they knew that they were hanging out in the other one's office. And I think that Ted Kennedy, everybody called Ted the Lion of the Senate. He spent 50 years doing amazing things in the U.S. Senate. And I think Ted Kennedy spent his 50 years in the U.S. Senate trying to be Bobby. That he was never, Jack was no role model as a senator. And he wanted to do, be worthy of what Bobby was trying to get done. And I think that by the end of his life, and I tested out this theory on Vicky, who came along late enough that she may not have been the right one to test it out, but she agreed. And I think that he so adored his brother, Bobby. He idolized Jack, and he adored Bobby. But he also, in the family dynamic, when Jack died, Bobby was there. and Bobby really took over. He stepped in with, with Jackie. He was there. Um, when Bobby died, Ted fell apart. Chappaquiddick happened soon after that. He was a total mess. And I think he never got over that, that he hadn't been able to rise, do what his brother had done and lead the family forward. He eventually did and was a wonderful, you know, uh, stepfather to the children without fathers and a great family. But he didn't do it when it was most needed. Um, We have some questions. Does the Jack-Bobby relationship speak well or ill of presidents with official relationships, appointments of family members? (laughs) So I think it sets the standard. And if the Trump's relationship can measure up to what Jack and Bobby had, then more power to them in bringing in relatives. But I think that the... um, I think Bobby Kennedy started out, one could say is one of the least qualified people ever named to be attorney general. Um, everybody joked, Jack joked. Jack joked about it. That, the, that he, this was a way of giving his brother some legal experience. Bobby, who had never tried a case in a court of law. And I would argue that he ended up as being one of the most effective attorneys general ever. And I think that, that if the Trumps can do that. Why? Tell me, this is off the subject and off the question. But explain... The Hoover, why he lets Hoover wiretap Martin Luther King. You give a good explanation in the, in the book, but I'm... Yes. I think... Us again. So there were two reasons why I think he did it. One, because um, he understood that if Martin Luther King was shown... This is when J. Edgar Hoover, in the middle of some of the most tumultuous part of the civil rights movement, J. Edgar Hoover is authorized to wiretap Martin Luther King. And I think he did it for two reasons. One is because he wanted to make sure Bobby knew how embarrassing it could be to the civil rights movement and, more importantly, to the Kennedys if some of the things that Hoover and his um, sources were telling the Kennedys about Martin Luther King having communists in his camp, if that were true, it could be embarrassing. And Bobby Kennedy wanted to make sure that it wasn't true. 
Um, the less noble purpose is that Hoover had something on everybody. And when Hoover asked presidents and attorneys general over the years, did but what he But Hoover asked. kept coming back and asking he wanted for it more so much and more didn't. and more. He did. He so I to, think yeah. Bobby asserted more control over J. Edgar Hoover than any attorney general he during did. the time Hoover was FBI director, sure. but there were still limits. What Bobby insisted, symbolically, what happened was there was a telephone that was supposed to be the hotline from the attorney general to the FBI director. And Hoover had a secretary named Miss Grundy. And that telephone was on her desk. And Bobby would call and he'd get the secretary. And he finally said to Hoover, remember, I'm your boss and I want this phone on your desk. And when I call it, you pick it up. And Hoover was outraged, but he did it because Bobby was his boss. And he knew that Jack was thinking about getting rid of him. He did it. The day after Jack's assassination, that phone went back on Ms. Grundy's desk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am glad I don't have to answer this question. Are there there any modern leaders or candidates who embody Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, in terms of policy, charisma, appeal? And I would add to the question authenticity. So I just met one and... Unfortunately, he's not a candidate. His name is Ted Kennedy Jr. And he is, of that generation, um, extraordinary. He was, I don't know whether you remember anything about him, but he was, as a boy, he had um, cancer of the bone, and his dad slept on the cot next to him at Dana-Farber and at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And he has spent his life being an advocate for people with disabilities. He moved. He could have had his dad's seat when his dad died. Instead, he moved next door to Connecticut Connecticut. and ran for state senator. And there's an opening now for governor of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And I was praying, and a lot of people thought that Ted Kennedy Jr. would run. And for some reason, he's decided not to run. Um, But I think he's somebody who has everything that his father and his two uncles had. And someday, there's another Kennedy of that generation, Bobby's son, Chris, who's now running for governor of Illinois, and something very unusual is going to happen. He probably will lose the primary, and he will probably be outspent by the other two candidates in the primary who are billionaires. Um, But I think there are a lot of people out there. Anybody who read the review section in this past Sunday's New York Times saw 20 names mentioned as people who are out there on the horizon. And every name that I was reading in that story, I got a little more excited about whether they're Bobby Kennedy or not, we'll see. But I think, I hope they learn something by his historic example about building bridges. I think Bobby was on the cusp in 1968 of doing something that when we think about it in 2016 terms, he was on the cusp of uniting the angry white Donald Trump supporters who were with him from his Joe McCarthy Cold Warrior days with the Hillary Clinton coalition of minorities and liberals And I think he was putting them together in a way that would have not just given him the nomination, but if there was anybody in America in 1968 who knew Richard Nixon's vulnerabilities, it was the guy who eight years before had won an unlikely campaign for his brother in beating Richard Nixon. And he still had in his bag of dirty tricks, Bobby had lots of things that he'd never used in 60 that he was dying to use against Nixon in 68. Right. He didn't use them in... Because he was afraid that Nixon had more bad stuff on him. Well, he used some of them. Richard Nixon, who you will recall, ended up with a nickname, Tricky Dick, 
said that he learned his best tricks in 1960 from, from that hardball Bobby Kennedy. In the, yeah. um, Nixon, Nixon in 60 had an extraordinary uh, collection of dirt investigators. And they found out in, in New York, they went after um, Joe for his anti-Semitism. And they got some of it right, most of it wrong. Um, but in the end, because Jack was such a indomitable character, and Nixon was just, I mean, he, he eventually came to live in New York. He didn't stay very long because his neighbor was Arthur Schlesinger. <laughs> and and to, Schlesinger was distraught at that. And they got into fights because Arthur's son would climb the wall and peer into Nixon's backyard where Nixon, in his suit and tie, would sit in the lawn chair um, reading the Wall Street Journal. And Nixon said, get that boy away from here. And Arthur would say, no. And Nixon finally left for New Jersey. But Nixon had all this stuff. And none of it did any good with, with New Yorkers. They voted overwhelmingly. Jack, including the Jews. And Joe said at some point, who would have thought that the Jews would give Jack a higher percentage of their votes than the Catholics in New York? So he did. Can I just say one thing about the anti-Semitism? You know about Joe's anti-Semitism or not anti-Semitism much better than me. But Bobby Kennedy, when he ran in 1964 for senator of New York, um, the Jewish community was initially skeptical and thought, geez, you know, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Joe Kennedy and anti-Semitism, and is Bobby an anti-Semite? And the, so he spent the beginning of his electoral life having to run away from the stigma of his father's anti-Semitism. And he was killed in 1968 by a Palestinian because he was too strongly supportive of the state of Israel. Sirhan Sirhan left a note saying that that was the reason he was going to kill Bobby Kennedy. And it just... Bobby, in a way, couldn't ever be given a break on these things. And I think that the, and it was really sad. And I think the Jewish community of New York saw that they had no better friend by the end and was out there. He was dying to come back to run in the New York primary and where I think he would have had extraordinary support from the Jewish community. He would have had extraordinary support from the Italian community, even though in his first campaign, he went to a pizza parlor and tried to eat his pizza with a knife and fork. He went to a kosher deli and, the, um, and a meat-only deli and asked um, for a glass of milk. Glass of milk. He was the, yeah. he was, he, his ethnic campaign, he wasn't exactly tuned in to start with, but he got it right in the end. Okay. Was- Let me just ask one more, one more question, a good question. Um, Bob Caro uh, describes brilliantly the feud between Johnson and, and Bobby Kennedy. Um, who do you think was more at fault there? <coughs> so I think there were um, two people whose entire takes on the world were so different. One was Harvard, Silver Spoon. The other was East Texas Community College, growing up in poverty. They, it was, to me, one of the saddest feuds. There were lots of reasons. Each thought the other one was a liar, and each had plenty of justification for their point of view on everything they hated about the other. But it was really sad to me because can you imagine if the two of them had ever gotten together and decided to together take on civil rights 
or poverty or to end the war in Vietnam, I'm convinced that one of the things that kept Johnson in Vietnam as long as he did was partly that he thought that Jack Kennedy had gotten us in there and would have stayed, and partly that Bobby Kennedy wanted us out. So that was a good reason to stay in. Bobby was convinced that any time he would give an anti-Vietnam speech in the Senate, that LBJ would step up the bombing the next day. And I'm not sure that he was wrong. And it's just one of the tragic feuds in democratic politics and progressive politics in America with those two. Bobby, um, you know, this is a wonderful book. And at this moment in time, we should all, for solace and for wisdom, read history, read presidential biographies to learn the way the White House used to work. And maybe someday will work again. And we should read this book because it tells us that there was not a terribly long time ago, not a Camelot, but there was a vision, there was a hope, there was a promise of a better America for all of us. It was embodied by Bobby Kennedy, and maybe one day there will be another Bobby Kennedy. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.